Let us pray. Our most gracious Father, plant this word we have heard this day deep within our own hearts. That we would grow and that we would change and that we would be renewed. That we would come to reflect the image of Christ more and more in this world where we live and walk. Guide us to know You more deeply. And guide us ever toward transformation of life, toward deeper faith, toward deeper trust. That we might walk upon the paths You have placed us on. All of this we do ask through Your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The picture that we get in our Gospel today, I think is a familiar one for all of us. We all had those moments in our lives where we have been told to go do something and we resisted doing it. That's much of my own childhood. Not wanting to do the very thing that I said I would do. Or not doing the thing that I've been commanded to do. Both of these situations fit me. Go do this. No, I won't do it. Or go do this and yes, I will and then I don't. It's a back and forth that happens throughout our lives. It's not one or the other all the time. It is both of them culminating in us at all times. Sometimes not doing the thing we've been called to do, refusing to do it, but then changing our mind. Other times saying, I will commit to doing this thing and then never doing it. In fact, resisting doing it and ignoring it. That is the crux of the situation that is facing Jesus today. That is the crux of what faces us each and every day. As He looks on the crowds, as He looks on the chief priests and the elders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all the leaders of the people. All of them have the opportunity to turn. For they have heard the Word of God. They're all given that chance to believe and to walk the path that God has called them onto. But what will they do? Will they reject their old ways and turn and believe? Or will they continue to cling to their old ways, their old beliefs? Will they continue to cling to their old sins and hang on to fighting and striving in their own pathway <coughs> instead of simply following where Jesus has called them to? And the reality is that we are all called from our old ways. We are all called from those old ways of rejection and called into believing the promise of God. And that promise is that we are forgiven of our lawlessness. And that in believing, we walk that path that God calls us upon. We walk the path that God calls us to. But I think to fully appreciate what Jesus is talking about in this passage... In these verses 28 through 32 of chapter 21, we have to step back and look at the larger context of the conflict going on. Back in verse 23, it says that Jesus has entered the temple. He is going there to teach. And the chief priests and the elders come to him and challenge him with a question. You see, this is the week following the triumphal entry, the week leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus in this parable in this story 
that we are hearing. The narrative has placed us here in that moment. And the chief priests and the elders are challenging Jesus. But they're doing it differently this time. Instead of asking Him doctrinal questions or directly challenging His teaching, they just go straight to Him and say, by what authority are you doing all these things? Who gave you this authority? They are confronting Jesus because they have refused to believe who He is. They refuse to believe that He is the Messiah and thus the Son of God and Son of Man sent from God. And so they challenge His authority. They ask, who gave you this kind of authority? Where is your authority for doing this? They hope that they can trap Him once more. All of their questions are always to trap Jesus. They hope that they can get Him to say some kind of direct answer to them, that they could then condemn Him as a rebel to the Roman Empire. That they could get Him cast out because He is challenging Roman authority. But also they know that when in moments in the past when Jesus has made blunt declarations about some kind of special messiahship or some kind of special leadership that He has, people, the crowds, have left Him. They have grown frustrated and grumbled and walked away. If you remember when He made the bread for 5,000 and their families, He then went into His discourse on the bread of life. And what happened? He tells him, you must eat the body and blood of the Son of God to have life in you. And the people began walking away. It was a teaching too far for Him to be saying that they must partake of Him in some mysterious way. That the Son came from heaven to be the bread of life for us. And the people left. The people began walking away. And so these leaders are hoping to trap Jesus in a confrontation with Him, in a question that will cause Him to speak too directly, that will drive these crowds that have been cheering for Him for the last couple of days, that will drive them away, but also give them ample ability to turn Jesus in to the authorities. But what does He do when they ask Him this question? He says, I will ask you a question in turn. And if you answer, then I will tell you where my authority comes from. You see, In Jewish tradition, when rabbis challenge each other, one rabbi comes and poses a question to other rabbi by way of answer, has the right of simply responding with a question that the other rabbi must answer. And thus they challenge each other back and forth with questions, back and forth, over and over, question, 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 but usually those questions are driving to a deeper point. They're driving to a deeper aspect of the original question asked. And so Jesus asked them this question. The baptism of John, from where did it come? Was it from heaven? Or was it from man? In a way, he seems like he's sidestepping their attempts to confront him and condemn him. But yet, he perfectly answers their question with this very question. They want to know where his authority comes from. And so he says, where does John the Baptist authority come from? Where did he get that baptism? Because he knows if they can answer that question, then they have answered the very question they have asked him. If they can answer his question honestly, then they know the answer of Jesus' authority. They know the answer for why he can do these things. Because they have to admit who John was. And if they admit who John was, then they have to admit the teachings of John which declared who Jesus was. If John's teachings and his proclamation are from heaven, 
then the leader's answers, the leader's questions about Jesus have been answered, right? John had said Jesus was the Lamb of God. He is the one to take away our sins, the sins of the whole world. If John's message is from heaven, then Jesus Himself comes from the throne of God. He Himself is God. His authority derives from God Himself. If John is a true prophet that they recognize, then they must also recognize Jesus as more than just a prophet. They must recognize the authority that resides within Him by being who He is. And so they draw back. They discuss His question. If we say from heaven, they say, Jesus will say to us, why did you not believe Him? But if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd. For they all hold that John was a prophet. They draw back knowing that if they confess John is a prophet, Jesus will confront them with their own sin, with their own unbelief. And they don't want to be confronted with sin and unbelief. They don't want to be confronted with the reality of their situation. But on the flip side, if they say, no, he was not a true prophet, his message was his own. He made it up on his own. They're afraid of the crowds. They are fearful of what the crowds would do. They know if they reject John, the crowds will reject them. And they will be abandoned by the crowds. And so they're left with a rock in a hard place. Say John is a true prophet, but be confronted by their sinfulness. Be confronted by their unbelief. Be confronted with their refusal to respond to the message of baptism and repentance from old ways. That they are called to turn to God by recognizing the law's authority over them. By recognizing the law's condemnation of they themselves. And they must ask for forgiveness. So what did the chief priests say? They say, I don't know. We don't know where... John's message came from. They lied to Jesus. For just by those very words, if we say he's not a prophet, we're afraid of the crowds. For that's where their tendency lies, I believe. That John was not a true prophet because he challenged them. He challenged their authority. He challenged their way of being. But they can't say that in front of the people. They show themselves to be cowards in that moment, refusing to give a direct answer, refusing to give a straight answer, refusing to say what is on their hearts and their minds. They hide behind fear, not choosing one side or the other. They sit on the fence of indifference in the hope that they can escape with their own actions, that they can escape with their own behavior, that they can escape with their own way of living life. And thus, Jesus in turn refuses to answer their question. Instead, He turns and tells them a parable. He has given them a way out. He gives them this poignant parable about the very situation they are talking about, the very situation that they are caught in. It's a parable that reminds them of the grace of God and His compassion. If only they would hear the Holy Spirit speaking and turn from their own wicked ways. And yet, before we move into this parable here, having this context set before us of this confrontation between the chief priests and the elders and Jesus, we hear those words from Ezekiel today. 
For it shows that the Old and New Testaments speak one word, and that word is that the law of God applies to us as individuals. And God is gracious when that law convicts. God is gracious when He sees us realize our failures and sees us turn from our lawlessness to Him. And that He will pour forgiveness on those, on us who turn, because He has promised to do so. That's the crux of what Ezekiel is getting at today. He speaks of this proverb, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. This was a proverb concerning the behavior of the fathers affecting the children and shaping them. But it had been twisted in Ezekiel's day. In Ezekiel's day, it was turned into an excuse for sin. Well, my father did this. He did such and such, and that is why I do the very things that I do, and I am not responsible for my actions. My father is, because he ate the sour grapes, and my teeth are set on edge because of it. It became a way of avoiding responsibility to quote this proverb. The proverb is true in and of itself that the father's actions affect the children. But that does not mean the children are not responsible for their own actions. And so God rejects this proverb. He takes it away. No more shall it be used. Because all souls are mine. The souls of the Father as well as the Son are mine. And the soul that sins shall die. The Lord lays down the law in this short little few verses. That while the people wanted to excuse their sin by blaming their forebears... God says, no more. No more blaming others for your own wrongdoing. No more blaming others for what you do wrong, for where you are lawless and have avoided the Lord. Yes, your fathers and forebears have influenced you. They have given you tendencies. They have given you some shape. But yet, you know the law. And the law says the things that you do are wrong. And so you bear the burden of your actions. You can't blame your sinfulness on others, even if they play a role in your tendencies toward those very things. We don't get to avoid responsibility for our sins, the Lord says through Ezekiel. If we stop there, that's very bleak. For after all, it just simply ends with the soul who sins shall die. But later on in the chapter, the Lord keeps speaking. He again confronts the house of Israel. The Israel is complaining that the Lord is not just. And He says, My way is not just. Is it not you who are not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? And when a righteous person turns from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. For the injustice that he has done, he shall die. And again, when a wicked person turns from his wickedness, And does what is just and right, he shall save his life. Here, the Lord shows us a way forward. That the soul who sins shall die, and yet, the soul who turns from that path of sinfulness shall find life. The one who has been walking that path of righteousness, if he abandons that path of righteousness, he will lose the life he has been given. He will lose the path, he will lose his righteousness, he will lose his walk before the Lord. It's not merely one act of sin here. When he says the righteous person turns from his righteousness, that means he's turning from the path he has been on his whole life. 
His turning from the law of God, His turning from the conviction of the law that drives Him to the Lord. His abandoning the path of God through the law, through the promise. And He turns to His sin and follows wickedness instead. That one loses His salvation. He loses His walk before the Lord. He loses the grace of the Lord and shows Himself to have been nothing more than a sinner all along. But the sinner who turns from his sinfulness and does what God calls him to do and walks that path of righteousness shows repentance and faith and trust in God's promises for why would a wicked man turn from his wicked ways unless he believes that God will forgive? For in turning from his wicked ways, that wicked man says, I have done wrong. For how can you turn from doing wrong to an all-holy God if you don't believe that He forgives, if you don't believe His promises? And that is what the wicked man does in this passage. He is turning from his wickedness because he knows God is gracious. He knows God is compassionate. He knows God is full of loving kindness and will teach the sinner his ways. The sinner who turns from his sin shall save his life because he turns to the path of God. And we hear that word throughout this passage. Each one will be judged according to his ways, the Lord says in verse 30. And so what does he say? If you're going to be judged for your wrongdoings, repent and turn. Repent and turn and have those old ways washed away, the Lord says through Ezekiel. Don't let your iniquity be your ruin. For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. So turn and live. That gives us an even broader context of what Jesus is getting at with these chief elders, with these chief priests and these elders, that they can turn, that though they say, I don't know where John's authority comes from, they can return to the Lord. They can say, I have lied I have, and confess their sins and say, I know that John is from the Father above. And if John is from the Father above, then you too, Jesus, are from the Father. You too are the Messiah. And we repent and turn. But that's not what they are willing to do. For this parable perfectly confronts them. With these two sons, the father went to the first and he said, I won't go work in the vineyard. The father says, go and work. The first son son says, no. But later, Jesus says, he changed his mind and went. That change his mind is not just the typical word for repentance. It's not the typical Greek word metanoia, a change of mind, a change of disposition, a change of action. It's another word that emphasizes the sorrow and the regret one has for doing wrong, for not doing what one has been told to do. And so this first son, he has regret, he has sorrow over the fact that he has disobeyed his father. And he goes and does what the father called him to do then. That that sin, that that regret, that sorrow drives him toward the Lord. It drives him toward his Father. It drives him to go out and do what he has been called to do, which means he has repented. If you have sorrow for not doing what you've been called to do and then you go and do it, that is an act of repentance. That is the Spirit working in your life. That is the Spirit changing you and moving you toward the Father and toward His promises more and more. But then there's the other son. After the first son says, I won't go, 
The father goes to the second son and says, go and work. And he says, I will. I go, sir. But then he's lazy and doesn't. He doesn't go and do the father's will either. And he doesn't change. The first son said, I won't go. He refuses outright to do the will of the father. But later he has regret for not obeying. And he turns and he goes out to that field to work. First, the second son refuses to go, though he says he will. And so Jesus asks that simple question, which of the two did the will of the Father? And they all quickly say, the first did. And so Jesus catches them once more, and He traps them instead. He turns their trap on themselves. Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes will go into the kingdom of God before you. Because they have known that they said no. They know that they are sinning against God. They know that they have turned from His ways. The tax collectors have betrayed the Jewish people. They collect taxes for Rome. They steal from the people. They build up their own personal wealth. They hoard their money to themselves and tax above and beyond what Rome demands. The prostitutes have abandoned the law of God. And have pursued their way of pleasure, whether through accident or through purpose. But yet they know they have done wrong. And when they hear John come and preach and proclaim repentance for forgiveness of sins and a baptism for that repentance to wash their sins away, they flocked to him. They went to him to hear his word. And they believed John. They responded to his way of righteousness. They responded to the word of God through him. They responded to the harsh law that He proclaimed that they would die in their sins if they did not turn. But they responded to the promise that in turning, there is forgiveness. In confession, there is knowledge that God is merciful. In repenting, there is the outpouring of God's grace and compassion upon you, a sinner, to be taken from your way of wickedness and placed upon the path of righteousness. Those tax collectors and those prostitutes heard John and responded and abandoned their old way of living. They abandoned their old paths of wickedness for the sake of the new path of righteousness toward God, living in repentance and knowing His forgiveness for them. But these chief elders, these priests and these scribes and these Pharisees, they heard John and they don't respond. They condemn Him. They reject Him. They scoff at these tax collectors and prostitutes who believe Him. Even when they see them going to John, even when they saw them responding and changing and being renewed, they still scoffed and refused to believe. They refused to change their minds afterward when they see them go and to turn and believe what John has said. All of this is driving us to the reality of the repentance that we need from our transgressions. That when we see God at work, when we hear of His Word, we hear of His law, it should convict us. Our consciences should not be seared, but they should be restored to know the work of God, to see His law at work, convicting and condemning, yes. But that law always comes alongside with the promise. The promise comes of the Gospel of Jesus Christ that He has died for our sins, that He takes those sins from us and restores us to Himself that He renews us, that He calls us away from that path of death, that we would walk the path of life. 
He calls us from that moment of saying, I will not go. That we would hear the word of the Father saying, Go. Come to me, all who are weary, Jesus says. The Father says that as well. And we say, No, I won't. But that word remains Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus turns us toward Himself with His words of saying, Come, the law is a burden upon you and has convicted you and is bearing down upon you. So just come and confess and drop that burden before me, and I will lead you forth in grace. You do not need to bear your sins anymore. Your sins are dealt with in Christ Himself. There's no need to spend eternity from the mercies of God, for God the Father has shown forth His mercy to extend forgiveness, to extend reconciliation to us sinners, us who have chosen the path of wickedness. And He calls us back. So may we turn this day, may we turn and believe and fulfill the work of God, that He would call us forth to go out in His salvation to walk the path of redemption, the road of redemption, that we would know more fully His power and His Word of promise to forgive. And we receive that as we turn. As we hear that Word, don't let your iniquity be your downfall. Don't let it be your ruin. Because I do not desire the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn and live. So turn. Hear the word of promise that you are forgiven in Jesus Christ. You are restored in Jesus Christ. You are redeemed in Jesus Christ and made a new creation for Him. So turn and live this day because He has made the path for you to walk on. He has made the path of salvation for you this day. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.